Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Johnny Williams. I am on staff here at the Vineyard, and I'm going to read our text this morning. It comes from John 2, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to be reading from the NLT. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told his servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washings. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of the ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called, to the, bride, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign in, at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus refilled his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Uh, we talked last week, if you were with us, about how uh, right now in the church is the season of Epiphany on the church calendar. Um, it is the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany, uh, the literal meaning of the word Epiphany is to shine through. And so we talked about how it is uh, a season where the whole church, uh, together, we all turn our eyes uh, to Jesus, to his nature and his character, to the things that he said and the things that he did. Um, and so last year at this time during Epiphany, we did a series of sermons or, or talks on uh, that we called Parables of the Kingdom. And um, because I am of the persuasion that uh, the kingdom of God is the thing that Jesus was always talking about and is also the thing he was always doing, uh, John Wimber, who's the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he said, everything Jesus said was kingdom and everything Jesus did was kingdom. And so because of that persuasion, um, if Epiphany is a season to talk about the things Jesus said and the things Jesus did, it makes very much sense to me uh, that we would jump back in where we, uh, we were last year in the, the, the parables of the kingdom of God, Jesus, uh, stories that happen alongside the kingdom of God. So, um, so that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We will unpack some stories, and at the same time, we'll allow those stories to unpack us, um, and more of what the kingdom of God is, more of what our role is in it. So um, last year, we started this series with a video uh, from the Bible Project called Heaven and Earth that um, was as succinctly as I, way more succinct than I would be able to do. Um, I think in like eight minutes, it unpacked everything I believe about the kingdom of God. That would take me, y'all know, like, I don't know, 
it's eight years so far, and I feel like I'm just getting started. So, um, um, but uh, uh, we're not going to show that video today, but we are going to put it on our social media this week. And then if you Google, and it won't hurt my feelings if you do it right now, like maybe make sure your volume's off uh, so you don't get embarrassed. But if you Google heaven and earth by the Bible project, um, I think it's a purple drawing. Uh, that video would, will empower the series more than anything else that I could possibly do. So um, check that out. Um, but before, so I'm not going to repeat all of that, but before I jump in today, I do want to talk about parables uh, just for a moment. Um, in the Bible, parables are stories that are used to illustrate something bigger than themselves. Um, so something like with a, uh, it's a story with like a moral lesson or a spiritual lesson. Um, if you go to the root word parable, uh, it comes from two Greek words. The first one is para, uh, which means alongside. And the next one is bala, which means to throw. Not like baller, uh, bala. Um, which, <laughs> that, just, that just made sense to me in this moment. As I was like, I'm not trying to be cool. Um, I don't have to try. Um, <laughs> we've gone off the rails. I've gone through. Okay, so para, which means uh, next to, bala, which means to throw. So an innocence parable, literally in its uh, root of, as a word, means to cast something or to throw something beside something else. So a parable is a story that goes alongside something else. It is a story that illustrates beyond itself to the thing next to it, to point to something bigger and wider than itself. And parables were Jesus' favorite way to teach. So if you're um, familiar or you have spent a lot of time with the Bible or Jesus' teaching, it may seem weird to you uh, that we're going to be doing the story that Johnny just read for us about uh, the water and the wine and the wedding and all of that, um, as it isn't what most people think of as a parable of Jesus. Um, but if you think it's weird that I picked it, know that Chad agrees with you um, because we argue all the time about the way I define parable <laughs> because we define it a little bit differently. Because um, honestly, at one point, Chad was like, I think you could argue that pretty much every story in the Bible is a parable. And I was like, you finally get it. Now you can move to Atlanta because I've taught you, <laughs> I've taught you all that I know in the world. Um, but I do, I really argue that almost everything in the Bible um, exists alongside something else. It exists to um, illustrate something beyond itself. And this story about Jesus at the wedding, to me, is no exception to that. Like, it is absolutely a story about Jesus and his mom at a wedding. But it is also a story about something far bigger and far wider than just that one moment. Um, if you are part of a core group here, um, most of our, almost every core group, I think, um, uses this uh, discovery Bible process. And so this may sound really familiar to you, but when we uh, here at Springbrook try to teach people how to read the Bible or how to do, read the Bible in community, um, we ask two questions uh, when we read the scriptures. And they're the same two questions every single time. The first one is, what does this tell us about God, uh, his nature, his character, who he is? And then the second one is, what does this tell us about what it means to be human? Uh, the vulnerability of human need or the empowering of human resilience or, or whatever it means uh, to be human. And we do this, we ask these two questions because of parable. 
Because we believe that the stories of the scriptures point beyond themselves and that they exist alongside human thought and alongside human experience, that, that the stories of the scripture are always telling us something about who God is and pretty much always telling us something about what it means to be a human and what the human experience looks like. And so with that in mind, um, let's jump into what I think is a really good story. Um, I think it's a really good story because it's about a party, and I love to party, um, and also because I love what I think it points to. So uh, John chapter 2 is uh, the story that Johnny just read for us. It's the first recorded miracle of Jesus. He tells us that at the end. Um, but John, he starts his, his, his story with some wording that I want to talk about. I just re really want to geek out on the first sentence for most of the time. Um, but at Springbrook, we, we always, pretty much always, we read out of the New Living Translation of the Bible. There are loads of different translations of the Bible. This is just the, the one that we like. Um, and I like it because it is a phrase-by-phrase -phrase translation of the Bible. A lot of Bible translations are word-by-word -word translations, and, and that's good. Um, but I like phrase-by-phrase -phrase because before the printing press and even kind of afterward, um, the, the Bible was a completely an oral tradition. It, is, uh, it was priests reading to a group of people. And so to me, it makes sense that we would find something very readable to all read together. So that's kind of our thinking behind the NLT. It follows that like oral tradition really well. Um, but like all Bible translations, it isn't perfect. Uh, and sometimes it gets it a little bit wrong. The perfect translation of the Bible doesn't exist. Um, I heard somebody say once that the King James Version was perfect because, and I am quoting exactly what they said here, if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for me. <laughs> and I didn't know where to begin. Like, a history lesson or like Jesus really wasn't around physically in 1611 and also he didn't speak English like why do we think anyway I didn't know where to begin um the perfect translation doesn't exist um and then and and though I love the NLT and I think it's incredible this is one of the places where it kind of falls short the story we read today the NLT says uh, the next day there was a wedding but a better translation of that would be on the third day there was a wedding uh, some of your Bibles, if you were maybe following along in a different translation, may have said that. Um, here's why that matters so much, why I'm spending so much time on these few words. Um, because John is a really good writer. Like, if you uh, are artistic in your mind, my guess is John would be your favorite of the four Gospels. He's like the writer's writer, and he picks his words so incredibly intentionally. Um, and I think he's pointing to something here. I don't think that John is super interested in us knowing exactly what day of the week the wedding was uh, as much as he is highlighting the symbolism of the story that's about to take place. I think he's far more interested in what might happen in the heart or soul or mind of a Jesus follower when they hear something about something happening on the third day. Like the third day is a big day for us. It's when we believe that, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that three days after he dies, third day, it's a, it's a huge deal for us. And I think probably the quote I've said here more than any other quote comes from N.T. Wright that he says that Jesus' followers are meant to be collectors of resurrection stories. And so in the hearts and minds of a Jesus person, the third day uh, should be sort of a, a, a clue to us. And I think it's John's artistic way of, of saying, you're going to want to pay attention to what's about about to happen. Like what is about to happen is that something dead is going to become something alive. And I think it's just his creative way of doing that. So on the third day, there was a wedding. 
And uh, like any good American, when I uh, read this, I instantly assume my own culture into the story. Ha, ha, ha. And a wedding, and, and I start to picture a wedding like weddings I've been to. Like I'm picturing Jesus and his mom, and they're at a, a barn with some mason jars, or they're at like a, like a warehouse with the coolest vibe and preferably a live band. No, no pressure, engaged people. Um, but I, that's what I start to picture. Uh, but, a, but a first century uh, Jewish wedding and a 21st century wedding in downtown Knoxville are really two different things. Um, for example, this, this wedding, it wouldn't have been just like a few hours on a Saturday uh, before the UT game starts or after the UT game starts, if you've ever tried to get married on a Saturday. Um, but, but this would have been a days-long celebration for an entire town. Like the thing that every single person would have been at. Days of eating and drinking and celebrating and partying. It would have been wild. It would have been fun. Uh, and it would have gone for days and days and days. So maybe instead of thinking uh, wedding, we should think more like festival. Like uh, this was like the Bonnaroo of Cana. That's a terrible illustration. Uh, Tennessee Valley Fair didn't feel quite right. So fill, fill in your own blank on what festival you would like to imagine. Um, but I'm trying to create this picture because, um, because not having enough food and not having enough wine would have mattered and it would have mattered a lot. Like a whole lot. Like that was what, why people were showing up. And the whole town is showing up expecting to be fed and watered. Um, and then on the third day, the wine runs out. And that has potential to be not just a very bad thing, but an incredibly humiliating thing. And I think we can kind of uh, relate to this. I've said this before in talking about the story that when I got married, uh, my mom and I were meeting with the caterers for our reception beforehand. And they said, if you run out of grilled cheese, uh, because we had grilled cheese at our wedding, judge if you want, but we found it to be bougie and classy. Um, <laughs> if you run out of grilled cheese and, and people ask if there's more grilled cheese, we'll just say, sorry, that's all they ordered. And we were like, oh, that is savage. You know, like how embarrassing. And so they were like, so if you want to add another tray, and we're like, yes, more trays. Like we don't, we don't want to be, we don't want to be embarrassed. You know, um, that, that's sort of a similar uh, idea here. Um, uh, when the wine runs out, we see that Mary notices and she starts to panic a little bit. And maybe to you, uh, it feels like that's a kindness of her, or maybe it feels like she should just mind her own business. Uh, but I think, again, our cultural lens comes into play here, because if you were to run out of wine at your wedding, you would probably send someone to, you would either end the party because you're ready to go home, or you would send someone to Kroger to get more wine, right? But in the first century, when the wine runs out at a wedding, there is no Kroger. And so I think that we are meant to feel the weight of Mary's concern. Because running out of wine at the first century, it, it, it would have been embarrassing, just like for us. Um, but it would have been something far beyond that. Uh, to run out of wine in a first century wedding would have been evocative of death. It would have been uh, like a bad omen, like a bad luck thing. For, for people, it would essentially be like, oh, you ran out of wine? This marriage is dead before it even started. That would have been the feeling. The party, it would have immediately ended like a death, and that shame would have hung over the bride and groom for their entire lives. And if that sounds dramatic to you, you live in a small town. You can understand how people get here. 
Um, for example, there are restaurants in this town that if, if one of you was like, hey, after church, would you like to go to, and you said one of those restaurants, I would be like, oh, no. Not because I've eaten there or had a bad experience there, but because someone I know knows somebody who had a really bad experience there. Anybody else? There is a restaurant in this town, and I'm not going to say its name, so don't ask me afterward because I might accidentally tell you. Um, but there's a restaurant in this town that I will not eat at. And it is because someone told me that they know someone who saw a table of some people and rats crawled behind their booth at this restaurant. Some of you know what you're talking about because you've asked me to go there. And I'm like, have you heard about the rat problem? <laughs> I've, never, I've eaten there a billion times. I have never one time seen a rat. And to be fair, my friend didn't see a rat. My friend knew someone who knew someone who saw some rats, right? This is what it's like to be in a small town. Things hang over, and they, they get bigger, and they get, I don't know, you've all been the victim of it. No wine would have killed the wedding, but it also would have hung like a death over the bride and groom for their life and for their marriage. Anytime something went wrong with them, it would have been like, oh, well, remember you ran out of wine at your wedding, you know? And I think this is interesting because in the story, they don't even really know that this is happening. Like we don't have any evidence that the bride and the groom know that this is going on. Uh, the story tells us that Mary's the one who knows, that Mary's the one who notices, which feels to me incredibly human. It feels so human and so universal that the end of something or the death of something or someone uh, is coming, but we don't see it coming from a mile away. I think almost all of you in this room have an experience of that where some sort of death or destruction of something or someone in your life was coming at you and you didn't see it till it hit you in the face. We've all been there. And I think pain is hard, but surprise pain is a whole other level of hard, right? And so Mary, kind and wonderful Mary, the God-bearer, she sees the empty wineskins, and she looks at her son, and she points it out, saying, like, do something about this. They're running out of wine. Do something. And Jesus replies, woman, that's how I read it. I don't know. I read it like super sassy. Uh, when my kids are bothered with me, they call me Lindy. Please don't do this. It is not my favorite nickname. Um, Lindy is a lovely name. It's just not mine. So they call me Lindy. So when I picture Jesus saying woman, I picture my kids bothering me where I'm like, hey, go clean your room. And they're like, okay, Lindy. That's the exact phrase that it happens in. So then they get to clean two rooms. It's fun for everybody. Um, but that's a cultural lens to see how Jesus is, is, is replying to this. Uh, I, I do like the NLT translation. It at least says, dear woman. When you go back to the original language here, um, the, Jesus' term for woman is like an endearing term. It's the same term he uses when he's on the cross and he looks down at John and tells John to take care of his mother. It's the same phrase he uses to describe her. Dear woman, it is not mine to do. It's not my time yet. This is not mine, not yet. But Mary, I think, sensing something from the Spirit, uh, looks at the wedding servants, the, the wait staff of the celebration, and says, uh, kind of, in my mind, I picture her like walking out in a whisper almost going, hey, do whatever he tells you to. Do whatever he tells you to. And I love that. She's not, um, I, I'm a mom. I have this, master, I think, a masterful way of manipulating kids into doing things. It's a terrible superpower that moms have. I don't think that's what she's doing here. I don't think it's a manipulation into action. I think she's looking at the servant saying, you're not going to miss what I'm pretty sure he's about to do. It's like the sense in her spirit. 
And so they do it. Jesus, he comes to the servants, and they do exactly what he says. And they take trips to the well. It would have been multiple, multiple trips to fill up 180 gallons of water that they put into barrels that were made for foot washing. And I love this part of the story. This is very parable to me. Jesus, he could have like expecto patronumed wine out of something. I don't know if you're allowed to quote Harry Potter in a sermon, but... I'm also a girl, so lots of things you're not allowed to do. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, need a, I, need, I didn't sleep a lot last night. Um, so he could have done that. Like, like we see another, he, he could have just made something out of nothing, or he could have made something out of something small. But instead, what Jesus does is, is, is he, he includes ordinary people in their ordinary work and an ordinary task. He says, go get water from the well, which they would have done over and over and over again. Not only does he do something extraordinary out of something ordinary, he also allows ordinary people to uh, access to the process. He allows them action in the miracle. He sends them to the well because he wanted them to be involved in what he was about to do. And I just think Jesus is so kind. He's so gracious that he uses things in people that he doesn't even have to, just because he wants to. He's so kind. And he's also so wild. Uh, One of my favorite preachers to ever talk about the story is my friend Adam Russell. And he makes this note that God, uh, Jesus, he takes the most ordinary thing in the entire world, water. And he turns it it into something risky and something wild and something extraordinary and something intense. Why? And I think that's part of the parable here, part of what the story is pointing to. It's pointing to the Jesus who doesn't uh, dislike or devalue what is common or what is ordinary, but the Jesus who, um, for whom common and ordinary isn't disappointing, but is fertile ground for something bigger or wilder or riskier or more intense. Uh, he does it here with water and wine, and in a few chapters he'll do it with uh, bread and fish. Uh, Some after that, he'll do it with mud and spit, where he creates a mask and he heals a blind man. Uh, Water, bread, fish, dirt. The most common things in the world are for Jesus, places for fertility, places for abundance, places for remarkable and miraculous and extraordinary I think somewhere along the way, uh, some of us have started to believe or have this idea that God hates what's ordinary in us, that there's no room in us, in, in us for ordinary in the kingdom of God. No room, sorry, no room in the kingdom of God for our ordinary. But to me, it seems like the opposite is actually true. Uh, to steal a phrase from my favorite wild theologian, Robert Capon, our ordinary doesn't exclude us from God. It makes us his cup of tea. It makes us what he wants. It makes us fertile ground for the extraordinary of his kingdom. And in my experience, uh, the ordinary places are the places God speaks to most in my life and and moves in most in my life. Uh, Here, Jesus takes something as ordinary as water and turns it into something as risky as wine. He He resurrects a party with impending death to show us what he's in the business of. Not just at parties, but in us, in our lives. So here's what I want to do. Um, every single week, we uh, take a, 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 something we call Selah. It's just a quiet pause or, 
or a rest. It's so funny. Whenever I start to introduce it, I watch and the whole room just like takes a breath together. And I'm like, yeah, that's what we're about to do. Um, and, and we do this every week. Um, but this week I want to offer you, sometimes we just kind of sit in silence and read scripture. And then sometimes we, we do practices or, or prayer tools. And I want to do that this week. I want to offer you a practice or a prayer tool. And the reason we do this is because we want to, um, we say this a lot, we want to practice in this room who we want to be outside of this room. Um, but, but we want to uh, show you things that you can recreate in an easy way in your own car, in your own life and things like that. And so we're going to do a practice called an examine of conscience today. Um, if the word examine is new to you, it's an examine is, is a, a prayer tool or a prayer practice created by St. Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuits. And essentially, it's just a tool that um, it, it's just a series of questions uh, or considerations that you would look at um, to, to connect you to the ordinary of your day uh, or the ordinary of your life and then take those things and offer them back to God. It's essentially just a practice to get present to your, to your own day, to your own life. Um, and so we do examines around here from time to time. In fact, if you saw our worship at home stuff, when um, we weren't here for service on January 1st, we did a worship at home, and there was a year-long examine. Some of you may have done it, um, and if you didn't, I'm not trying to shame you, but like, it was awesome. <laughs> uh, Johnny helps write it. It's incredible, um, and so it's definitely worth checking out. That's a much longer version of what we're doing today. Um, I think it's still on our social media, but if you can't find the link, uh, holler, and I will send it to you, because it was really powerful and fruitful for me, so... Um, so we do them. We do them uh, from time to time. But today we're going to do a much shorter version. It's called an examine of conscience. Um, and it has just one question to it. Uh, a lot of times um, if, if you're Catholic and you're doing an examine of conscience, usually you're looking at your own sin or destruction. Um, but uh, I was reading an article last week by a spiritual teacher I love. Her name is Ruth Haley Barton. And um, she says that when she uses an examine of conscience, uh, she asks just this one question and allows God uh, the room and space to maybe answer her. And here's the question. Dave, I think I have a slide for it. It may already be behind me. Um, here's the question. She says, uh, reveal yourself to me. Show me where you were present, making the ordinary extraordinary. I don't want to miss a thing. That's it. That's all she considers. Reveal yourself to me. Show me where you were present, making the ordinary of my life into extraordinary. I don't want to miss a thing. And then here's what she says about it, and I love this. She says that this is a question God loves to answer. That he loves to wake us up to his presence and his power in our lives. God, he isn't just working in secret in hope of, hopes of not being discovered by us. Instead, he's present in things that feel common to us or ordinary to us. He's relational through and through. He's the God who loves a party and loves to be discovered. And I think the resurrector of the party wants to be found in our everyday life. I was reading, uh, I've been reading a lot of MLK this weekend. And, um, and he says this thing. He says, we do not burst forth in God because of knowledge. We burst forth in God because of experience. And I think God wants to be experienced. So we're just going to spend a few minutes sitting here, and my hope is that you'll spend time on this question. We'll leave it up on the, on the screen. Um, but this is your time to use however you want. If you just need a few minutes of aimless silence, then take it. If you're uh, here and this question makes you uncomfortable because you're like, I don't even know if I believe that God can be found. Why would I look for him? Then like aimless, pre aimless silence, is, it, 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 that's our gift to you is a few quiet moments. So, um, so I just want to pray and bless it. And then we'll just sit here and we'll just trust that the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit does. Um, one little like 
I don't know, helpful hint. When you're doing an exam and it helps to just kind of pick like a short timeline, like, God, where have you been present in the last 24 hours or over the weekend or the last week? When we start to go beyond that, it gets a little vague and messy or in my life, but I also, you know, have a raging case of ADD. So um, <laughs> up to you. So let's pray and, and I'll bless it and then we'll just sit quietly for an uncomfortable amount of minutes. So Jesus, uh, we thank you for your presence. We believe that you're with us, but we ask that you would uh, make us aware of that. So I just pray in these next few minutes that you would um, allow us the space and the bandwidth, uh, the presence of mind, the conscience of mind, uh, to see where you are making extraordinary out of our ordinary things. What are the tiny places that you showed up and did something that, um, something wonderful or kind or merciful or miraculous that maybe we missed? What is the, the phrase that someone said to us? that was from them, maybe about us, but maybe was actually from you? What is um, the place where you provided? I don't know. Will you just wake us up to your presence? We believe you to be the God who wants to be found, and so we ask that we would find you right now.